In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning, which is not the one that's in your bulletin, I'm sorry, which the one that I just read is not what was in your bulletin, but it was spurred by the song that we just sang. Our text this morning is from Mark chapter 4. We're continuing in that series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're concluding chapter 4, starting with verse 35. And verse 35 starts this way. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Now, look forward a few verses to chapter 5, verse 1. They came over to the other side. Okay, let's go over to the other side. They arrived at the other side. And everything in between is the subject of our study today. The episode with the storm and the sea. All the things that happened there. But this study is about a whole lot more than a weather report or a climatology discussion. This, what we are looking at here is an event that shook the disciples. Men who had seen Jesus perform other miracles, had heard Jesus teach, this event shook them to their core. The story itself is simple, but the implication for the disciples and for you and for me, the implication is just massive. So, you know, I love the fact that the Bible is very honest about its heroes. I mean, heroes in quotes, right? Um, warts and all. Uh, the disciples don't look all that heroic here. Uh, I'm really glad that they were afraid and that they felt like Jesus didn't care, which makes them seem a little less like stained glass people who don't that I don't identify with, but sadly... The way that they show themselves to be, I really do identify with them. So let's read this text, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to analyze it verse by verse, which is something new. We've never done that before here. So chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then they come to the other side of the shore where nothing bad will happen once they get on dry land, right? Yeah, that's next week. <laughs> okay, so let's take this passage apart and, and look at it um, uh, point by point. And, and what I, want, I do want you to understand this. The main point in this passage is not, not about Jesus getting you through the storms of your life. That can be a point. It's not a wrong application. It's just too little. It's uh, to, to misquote another Mark, Mark Twain. It's like the difference between a lightning and a lightning bug. So the passage is not about what I am going through right now. That is an application. But the main point of the passage is, who then is this? Who is he? And after you get the issue, the question of Jesus' identity settled, then you can move on to the question about Jesus' authority over the circumstances of your life that we face. So there's some interesting details that are thrown into this text. 
in verse 36, right at the beginning, after dismissing the crowd, and, and I'm going to throw in a few things from the Greek text here and there because it's just kind of fun to see. The word dismissing is in the plural. In other words, it's, this is not Jesus doing this. This is the disciples doing this. They're in charge. They're taking over. We've got this. And they're telling the crowds, we're done here. Nothing to see anymore. Go home. And they take him just as he was. And uh, I'm sorry, they, they took him along with them in the boat. And the disciples, remember, you, at least four of them were, were fishermen on this body of water. So they dismiss the crowds. They take Jesus into the boat uh, across, across the uh, sea. That's their plan. We've got this. We're in charge just as he was, which is, uh, I, th I think that what that means is kind of an unpremeditated trip. Uh, they're not taking supplies with them. Jesus is just tired. He is exhausted. And if you read the other Gospels alongside Mark, you'll see he has had a very long day. And he is worn out to a frazzle. And, and, and by the way, there's one more detail. Other boats were with him. This is an absolutely pointless detail. But it's the hallmark of an eyewitness account of Peter to Mark, who wrote this. I mean, it's just the kind of say, oh yeah, and there, was a, there, was a, there were other boats there, there too. We're not even told what happened to those other boats. But it's the kind of detail that lets you know that in the minds of the disciples, this was a very memorable event. Uh, what happened to the other boats? We don't know. Maybe when the winds came up, they went back to the shore because after all, the, uh, the, the main attraction was asleep in the boat. So uh, we're, we're not sure what happened to them. There's, there, but there, there's no allegory here about abiding in Jesus. And if you don't, you're going to go down or Jesus is Jonah or, or, if, if, or, or maybe something about baptism. <laughs> no, there, there's nothing like that in this text. It's just this is an eyewitness account of what really happened and verse 37 tells us a fierce gale of wind developed the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up with water now we've described the sea of galilee before you'll remember uh, it's it's part of the jordan it's the top part of the jordan valley jordan river flows into the sea of galilee sea of galilee itself is is roughly about 13 miles long and about seven and a half miles wide kind of an oval you can, you can make it into a, a sharp-pointed oval, and then down from that flows the Sea of Galilee all the way down into the Dead Sea, surrounded by uh, mountains and hills all the way. So, uh, uh, and, and what's interesting is it's 700 feet below sea level. It is the lowest fresh, freshwater lake on Earth. And the Dead Sea is the lowest saltwater body of water on Earth. But uh, there is, one of the things that, that it's well known for, because of the mountains, because of, of the various ways in which things come down into the, the valley, there's an old classic book that describes the uh, uh, notorious storms that come up and stir up the water. Now, here's the thing. These fishermen are well-versed in storms on the Sea of Galilee. This is their livelihood. But this storm was different. This storm is one that was beyond the experience of these experienced fishermen. This storm was so intense that they had lost hope. So where's Jesus? Well, verse 38 tells us Jesus was in the stern, back of the ship, asleep on the cushion. Now, don't envision that, you, you know those pictures of beds in catalogs with 47 pillows on top of them that are totally useless? Okay, this is not Jesus jumping on all these pillows, like, kind of like in a Nerf pit or something, uh, and, and landing on this soft thing. We're not told if it's padded or not. It's just, it's a, a, a part of the back of the boat, and as, as soon as he got in there, he was out exhausted and he, he, he is the god man in his humanity he need he gets thirsty 
he needs to sleep, and he can die. So here he is, totally asleep in the boat. I have heard it said that after preaching, sometimes pastors take naps. I don't think that's true, but I've heard it's a rumor. So it's, I, I guess it's possible someplace on the planet. The point here, Jesus has no fear. He's, he's just out. But the disciples are appalled. He's sleeping. He's sleeping. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, at this point, the disciples do know that Jesus is more than a carpenter. It's not a case of fishermen awakening a carpenter to make sure that the boards of the ship are well aligned and keep the water out. It's not that they're not asking him to fix the boat. They do know he's more than a carpenter, but they, their faith is still pretty minuscule, pretty tiny, maybe like the size of a grain of mustard seed. Verse 38 ends with the first of three rebukes in this text. Now, the second rebuke is when Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea. The third one is when he rebukes the disciples for their little faith. But the first one is where the disciples rebuke Jesus. <laughs> this wide-eyed, white-eyed desperation that they are experiencing. They're not challenging his lack of wisdom for wanting to go across the Sea of Galilee in the evening when most of the other boats would be coming in. Um, they're not even challenging his power. I mean, they may be hoping that he might do something to keep the water out so that they could manage bailing out more than, uh, faster than the water could come in or that the waves would not engulf them. They may be hoping that uh, Jesus would protect them in, in some way like that. Uh, but their rebuke actually implies that Jesus doesn't really care for them. That's what they are just erupting with. Because as far as I can tell, and I, I'm not sure about this because I haven't tracked out everything in the Gospels to check. I checked out quite a ways. As far as I can tell, until Jesus' arrest, this is the pretty much first and only time that the disciples themselves are at their personal risk for being with Jesus. And they, their personal fear for themselves overwhelms their mustard seed faith. So, and by the way, you know, later on, it's not going to be the last time, but they accuse Jesus with indifference in their time of need, not his power so much as his character. And now we come to the crux of the text. Verses 39 and 40 put the spotlight on Jesus. Verse 41 puts a spotlight on the disciples and their reaction. So verse 39, and he got up and rebuked, this is the second rebuke, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. What did this look like? I want to belabor this point. Because this is what made the event so memorable to the disciples. There are different kinds of past tenses in the Greek language. There is a tense that would describe kind of a gradual calming down of the wind and the sea so that they began to quiet down. Uh, and the disciples had experienced that all of their lives. First, the wind dies down. That can be fairly sudden, but it can also be very, very gradual. But then second, the waves take a much longer time, maybe hours to become calm. Uh, now, if that is what had happened, someone be, would be able to look back and say, you know, it was quite a coincidence that when Jesus said, hush, be, be, uh, be calm, be still, things began to slowly wind. You know, don't you think? I think it could be a coincidence that that just happened to be the time when Jesus said that. 
Because eventually, all storms do stop. They do become calm. But that's not the past tense that's used here. The reaction of the disciples shows that they are dumbfounded, astonished, stunned, just stunned. They've never seen anything like this. This calm, this calm was sudden, like a giant hand just pressed down on the sea to flatten it out. Done. Done. It happened in a way that none of the fishermen had ever experienced before. No one would ever be able to think, well, you know, that's kind of curious. No. The miracle was not that the wind stopped and the sea became calm. That would have happened eventually. Eventually. It might have been hours and they might have been dead, but it would have happened eventually. The miracle was in the immediacy, the suddenness of the control of the wind and the sea in his hands. And they would know, these men would know, this is not how nature works. Not at any level. This is different. There's no way they could later rationalize this as a coincidence. There's no other explanation that exists for this. And the term perfectly calm is a Greek word, mega, <laughs> like mega million. You, you hear that with lottery stuff. Um, the, the, the word mega is actually the word that is used here. It became mega calm. Boom. Mega calm. Just like that. One New Testament scholar who I'm sure must have at one point in his life been a Baptist preacher described it this way. The winds and the waves synchronize in the sublime symphony of solemn silence. But even the noise level went from crescendo to nothing. Think about this. Jesus doesn't pause and pray and ask God to still the storm. He doesn't say, you know, I'm going to go back in the stern, and I'm going to come out about an hour, and we'll try to have an understanding, a sense of God's will for this process, and see what he wants to do. No, Jesus is the one who commands nature. Question. Why did Jesus even say the words? Did he have to say, hush, be still? I mean, he's been talking about having ears to hear. Did the winds and the water have ears to hear? Did the waves have ear canals and auditory nerves that translate vibrations into brain waves so that the sea could cognitively stop and think, oh, maybe we better, and, or maybe Neptune's down there. Hey, maybe I should dial it back now. It, it, what's, what's going on? No. Why, in fact, why does Jesus employ words in any of his miracles? didn't have to. It's because the creator is the God who reveals. And that happened right from the beginning in Genesis 1. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And then all the way into the New Testament, and the word who was the creator became flesh and dwelt among us as the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world so all creation is done by the word of the god who reveals and at issue in all of life is will we listen to god's word his truth and what's clear is the demons do sickness does the wind does the sea does other than the devil and his minions Mankind, image, is the only holdout in the cosmos that refuses to obey God's word. Because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to decide what's true for me. And he says, no, no, no. You need to have ears to hear. 
How does Jesus respond to their response? Verse 40, he said to them, why are you afraid? Not why were you afraid, they still are. (laughs) Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus had been teaching about faith and how different people respond when the gospel seed is sown, like the sower and the other parables and these other teaching. Jesus expects his disciples to believe not only what he says, but who he is. He expects faith. And the word for fear here in verse 40 actually means scared. Why are you scared? They were scared of the wind and the waves. The next verse uses a different word for fear. They were scared of the storm. But the next verse uses the word fear. And guess who is the object of their fear? Yeah, always answer Jesus if you're not sure what the answer is. (laughs) Jesus is the the one of whom they become afraid. And we're going to see what that looks like. But here's, here's, the, here's the thing is that, that, that's going on here. The fear that they have of Jesus is not the kind of fear that you'd have at a horror movie or something like that. It's, it's, not, it's a sense of awe, but it's kind of a strange mix. It's, it's like we are in awe of Jesus, but who is he? They're, they're almost coming to the point of what have we gotten ourselves into? They're almost at the point of saying, we don't know how to think about this. Their categories are exploding. Now, actually, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their rebuke of him. Instead, he rebukes them for their lack of faith. Literally, do you not yet have faith? That is the kind of faith that he wants them to grow into. After all, Jesus had said, let us go to the other side. He had not said, let us go to the middle of the lake and drown. So Jesus' expectation is that they should be growing. And they should be growing in their faith beyond where they actually are. And that kind of rebuke is a pattern that begins to unfold throughout the New Testament. Uh, And I'm just going to mention, you'll see this pattern. It starts here but it continues to expand. There are future rebukes where Jesus felt that they should be farther along in their knowledge of him and their faith in him. Listen to Mark 7, 18. He said, and this is to the disciples, he said to them, are you also without understanding? Do you not see? Mark 8, Jesus, aware of this, said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand are your hearts hardened having eyes do you not see having ears do you not hear are do you not yet remember next uh, a few verses later he said to them do you not yet understand mark 9 19 and this is where the disciples could not cast a demon out of a boy he is speaking of the disciples and he said oh faithless generation how long am i to be with you How long am I to bear with you? So, yeah, this is something that is is happening. Their faith should grow. Their understanding should grow. And they should grow hand in glove together. Now, back to Mark chapter 4, verses 39 and 40, we said, put the spotlight on Jesus. Now, verse 41 puts the spotlight on the disciples and their reaction. Verse 41, they became very much afraid. This is not scared, this is afraid. Different word. And the word is supersized. It's not just they became afraid. It's not just they became very afraid. It's they became very much afraid. And he uses the word mega again. You got a mega calm? They became mega afraid. Now, the object of their fear is Jesus. Okay. But why now? I mean, they've seen other miracles. 
They know about demons and about sickness. But this, this is different. The wind and the sea, even the wind and the sea, I mean, the, the wind and the sea obey him. We've seen sickness obey him. We've seen demons obey him. But this is nature in a way that we haven't seen before. This is magnitudes higher than what we have ever seen before. Now, uh, they have never seen a nature miracle like this from Jesus. In chapter 5, Jesus is going to perform an exorcism. And the exorcism is not going to be on one demon. It's going to be on legion. So the magnitude is ramping up. But that's next week. So they say to one another, verse 41 continues, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Now, I believe that at this point they do think that Jesus is the Messiah. But they're now questioning their former understanding of the Messiah, his identity. Exactly who is the Messiah? The scribes and Pharisees said that the Messiah was to be a political figure, kind of a superman, a political figure who would come and and militarily rescue them from Rome. But Jesus isn't like that. And their categories are being stretched and changed and enlarged. In the scriptures, it is God, not man, who controls the weather, right? Even Elijah didn't control it. He, he, He went off and prayed to see what God would do with the weather. As I said, Jesus didn't pray for God to control the weather. He just, he just controlled it. Kind of like earlier, remember, when we talked about the Sabbath? Jesus referred to the Sabbath. He said, you know about the Sabbath? It's mine. Yeah, Sabbath is mine. Winds and waves, mine. The Old Testament is just filled with the majesty of God seen through creation, and how God and God alone, no one else, controls nature. In Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? Psalm 19, The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And you've got that kind of refrain about the majesty of God and the magnitude of creation repeated over and over again throughout uh, all of the Old Testament, um, and, and even in the New Testament, the book of Romans and other places. I mean, just a couple of facts. Uh, there are about 200 billion stars in our galaxy. I say about. I haven't counted them. But there are about 200 billion stars, give or take three or four, in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. If you were to travel at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, across our galaxy, it would take you 100,000 years to cross our one galaxy. And astronomers estimate that there are about 100 billion galaxies. So far. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, whether you're an astronomer looking through a telescope or you're a a scientist, a microbiologist, a geneticist looking through a microscope at the intricacies of the human body, the human genome, uh, the, the amazing processes of photosynthesis that had to be in place before any life existed. And all of a sudden, boom, there it is. If you look at those processes, if you look to a telescope or a microscope, as David said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Both ways of looking at the world above us and around us and the world within us, all of those produce wonder at our Creator. And one psalm in particular is a psalm that the disciples would have been familiar with. It was a part of the reading in the temple. 
And I want you to hold your place here in Mark chapter 4, and I want you to turn over to Psalm 107. So Psalm 107, this is a psalm about the weather, in part. We're going to read the verses about the weather. Psalm 107, I'm going to start in verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens and they went down to the depths. That is, you see the the huge waves and then the troughs of the waves. Verse 26 continues, their soul melted away in their misery. That is, the people who were on the boat experiencing the waves, they're just giving up hope. Verse 27, they reeled and staggered like a drunken man. That is, they couldn't keep their balance on the thing. And were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let us give thanks to Yahweh, to the Lord, for his loving kindness. Who does this? God. But Jesus just did this exactly the former dean of duke divinity school who and duke divinity school is no bastion of orthodoxy okay his name is richard hayes uh john uh Reniger put me on to this book wrote a book about the old testament and the gospels and he says this about the question in mark's gospel who then is this this is what he says For any reader versed in Israel's scripture, there can be only one possible answer. It is the Lord God of Israel. And then he cites Psalm 107 and a few other passages, but Psalm 107 mainly. And he concludes this, quote, What is unmistakably clear is that Jesus' mastery over the wind and waves demonstrates that he is the possessor of a power that the Old Testament consistently assigns to the Lord God alone. So who exactly is this? If Jesus is the Messiah, is Messiah then God, Yahweh? Is Jesus then God in the flesh? It's a new thought to them, I believe. It, I mean, it shouldn't have been. It's there in the Old Testament, but I don't know if I would have seen it given the cultural blinders that they were raised in, the ways that they were taught to think about things. But as they continued to learn, they began to realize that the Messiah is indeed Yahweh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But that unveiling is a gradual thing, and it takes them a while for their worldview to become aligned to the truth of the Scripture. That's why we read all the way through the Gospels, but just a few places to, to consider. In Matthew 22, verse 29, Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees, and he says, you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. To the Sadducees, you don't understand the Scriptures. To the Pharisees in the same chapter, he asks the Pharisees, the Messiah, whose son is he? Now, son means physical descent. Who is he descended from? They answer, David. So he's a human being, Messiah is, descended from David. Jesus continues, then why does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord, Yahweh. And he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, my Lord, David's Lord. You do, I mean, so Yahweh, of course, is God. So the Messiah is the God man. And that's why from that point on, they, they didn't ask any more questions. <laughs> they just did not like where this Bible lesson was going. Listen to Mark, I'm sorry, listen to um, Luke chapter 24. Just listen to this. Luke chapter 24, Jesus is talking to the 
to the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus after he's been raised from the dead. And he says this to these two men, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now listen to this. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then later on in the same chapter, Jesus is with all of the disciples. And he said, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me. And he gives the threefold division of the Jewish canon in the law of Moses, the prophets and the writings, the Psalms. All those things must be fulfilled. That's throughout the whole Old Testament. Now listen to this, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, it is thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And as he opened their minds, all those things, when the blinders were removed and all those passages that it had, all these hints in the Old Testament, all of them together shifted over and locked into place. And that was the apostles' teaching that continued on as the Holy Spirit inscripturated the New Testament that we have now in our hands. So when you, when you see this, it's all according to the Scriptures. So we, we leave the disciples here. They're in a boat on a perfectly placid sea, open-mouthed, confused, jaws dropping, almost afraid to believe what they're challenged to believe. But at least they know now that their boat's going to go on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and and everything will be hunky-dory there, right? (laughs) It's an amazing story, really. It's all about Jesus' identity. It's about fear and faith. But I think also it's about dealing with the circumstances of our lives. I'm going to get into that in just a second. Uh, Here's a common question that people ask about this story. What should the disciples have done if they did have faith? Interesting question, isn't it? You'll notice that Jesus didn't say, why didn't you command the waves in the sea? That's That's a God prerogative, not theirs. Their little faith is not that they should have commanded the weather themselves. In fact, you remember Paul, when he was about to be shipwrecked, God didn't tell him to get on the bow of the ship and say, peace, be still, right? So what should they have done? Almost everyone who poses this question says that, uh, they, that if, if they'd had real faith, they would have let Jesus rest and weathered out the storm uh, because Jesus was with them and their boat would not sink. Or, I like this, or maybe they would still have awakened Jesus and said, Lord, we know that you do care about us. We can't fix this. Would you come and still, or (laughs) would you get us through this? Uh, Would you take care of the wind and the sea? One thing that they did learn is that you don't tell God what to do. He tells us, and we are to align our wills with his will for our lives. Faith is not presumption where we tell God what to do. We are under his authority. Years ago, one of the major leaders of the charismatic movement is a regular columnist with uh, Charisma magazine, and that's... uh, that particular magazine is one that this, um, I had one experience with them and it was not a happy one <laughs> where, things, where truth was distorted. Uh, at any rate, this particular man had cancer and he was told that he was healed of cancer. I mean, that's what he said. He wrote articles about his divine healing and it was declared throughout that community. And 
it was communicated that God had told him he was going to live to the age of 100 with a clear mind. And that was also communicated uh, throughout that community. And then a few weeks later, he died at the age of 59. And then the word was put out, well, yes, God did heal him of his cancer. He did not have cancer. He died of complications. Um, as though God sort of misunderstood the prayer. Oh, you wanted him alive. That kind of, of, of presumption can be destructive of faith, I think. Uh, it was not a good testimony. I love the statement of Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace when they would not bow to the image of King Nebuchadnezzar who was in a, quote, furious rage. You remember what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said? Because Nebuchadnezzar said, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That was his question. Here's their response. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. Okay, <laughs> whether life or death, we're not going to be in your, under you know, your control. But if not, that is, if it's not his will to deliver us alive, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So God can. He may. He may not. That's up to him. But he's still in control, and you're not. God may deliver me from this storm, but he may not. If he does not, he is still God. I am still his. I still trust him, his character, his love, his goodness. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. I'm going to end with two ideas, two, two major points for application. The first is this. This whole story is about this one question. Who then is Jesus? Who is he? The God-man who commands the wind and the waves wants your faith to be in him and he wants that faith to grow to progress out of the spiritual diapers so first do you know who he is we're separated from a holy god by our sin and that creates a chasm between us and god we cannot cross we don't have the ability but god took the initiative he became flesh flesh that can get tired flesh that can die on a cross and on that cross he took into himself all of the sins of mankind so that he could offer to us the free gift of salvation to those who would receive that gift but with empty hands we don't bring anything to him we receive the gift of salvation from him the wages of sin what's earned is death but the free gift of God, not what's earned, what's given, what's given, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You are rescued from your sin by grace through faith plus nothing. By the way, once we're believers, once that first question is answered, that initial baby faith is supposed to grow. And you know how it grows? You may like this, you may not. You know how our faith is to grow? by being tested in storms. James 1, I want you to listen to the very first words of the New Testament, because James is the first book. First words of the New Testament. Count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your what? Faith produces endurance, and you grow spiritually. By the way, in the Old Testament, I believe the first Old Testament book to be written was Job. What's it about? Trusting the sovereign God in the midst of the storms, in the midst of your trials. So, that leads me 
to the second closing point. The first question, who then is this? But the second question, how can I apply this passage to the storms of my life? Or can I apply it? Well, if you answer the first question correctly, then yes, you can. (laughs) If Jesus is your Savior, if you are growing in your faith, then yes, you have a better understanding of how these things are to be applied in your life. Exactly how do you apply it? The application cannot be, you won't go through storms. That can't be true. It's just not true. And besides, he's already told us that's how you grow. The biblical truth is actually captured in an old saying, and this is not from the Bible, but it's got Bible written all over it. Sometimes God calms the storm. Sometimes God calms his child in the midst of the storm. Both are true. Sometimes God allows you to experience trials and carries you through them, and then they're over. Sometimes God doesn't change the trial. The circumstances remain the same, but he keeps you there, and he holds you, and he grows you in place. And I think it's a, uh, that's a, an important lesson and an important distinction for us to learn. I believe that the last five weeks of my sister's life, from diagnosis to death, was the greatest experience in the growth of faith that she ever had, to the point where she was far more ready to meet Jesus than we were ready to let her go. Paul asked God to remove his thorn in the flesh, and God said, no. My grace is sufficient. It's enough for you. And he continues in 2 Corinthians 12, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution. Can you say you delight in those things? I'm going to repeat that again. This is just mind-blowing. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. A dear friend of mine wrote to me about his cancer shortly before he died, and he said this, my confidence was always grounded in my own physical abilities just as much as my faith in God. Uh, He was a military guy. This fight is different. This is the first time I've relied on God's love for me when I haven't been in a position of physical strength. It's not an easy position for me. But Christ now owns me in a new and deeper way. It's hard to describe it. It feels good, but exhausting. The real answer to prayer is not simply that I'm still here or how I'm doing medically. Rather, it is who I am becoming on this journey. Our human nature fixes our attention on the end state when the purpose lies really in the miles of the trial. I see it as an opportunity and not a crisis, almost a mission, if you will, to live what I believe without fear or hesitation. I don't like it when people say they are sorry. I love it when they say, fight hard, you've got this. But for me, I've got this refers to how I fight, not the outcome. When I read that to you, did you hear the words faith, fear, trial, journey yeah and i i know we're tempted and i get this i know we're tempted because i'm there too we're tempted to say lord do you not care that we're perishing that i don't have a clue how to parent a teenager lord do you not care that that i have had my third miscarriage lord do you not care that my son needs both jesus and rehab do you not care that my marriage is failing? Do you not care that I just got fired from my job? Do you not care? But our response of faith should be, Lord, I know that you do care about my job, about my family, about all these things that are happening to me. I know that you can heal, that you can repair, can fix these things, but I don't know your will for the outcome of this particular storm. I do know you. And your goodness. 
And I trust you to come alongside me, either to calm the storm or to hold me and calm me in the midst of the storm so that my faith, as it grows, will glorify you and make the gospel evident to those who are watching my life. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You can argue that the disciples had no right to be afraid simply because Jesus was in the boat. But you know what? You can also argue that the disciples had no right to be afraid even when Jesus was not in the boat. God does not require the physical presence of the molecular structure of Jesus' body in order for us to be safe or to trust in him or to have faith or for our faith to grow. Hebrews 13, which was our reading this week, and, and our reading this week, the author of Hebrews was writing to people who would shortly be facing intense persecution, and this is what he wrote in Hebrews 13. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may confidently say, and he quotes Psalm 118, the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus, the Word has become flesh. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As Jesus said, I am with you even to the end of the age. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, I thank you for this reminder from your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to put our storms into perspective. Lord, it's one thing to assent to this, it's another to live it. And I pray that the ways in which we live it would glorify you until we are face to face with our Creator and our Savior. In his name.